0: Deborah and Annie, I'd like to welcome you to New Books in Genocide Study, and say thanks so much for agreeing to be with us today.
1: Thank you for having us. It's great Thank to you. be here.
0: <laughs> your, uh, I was so impressed with your book, which is um, a fascinating connection, uh, collection of essays, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you. And so I would just ask you to start, and we'll start with Deborah by um, saying just a little bit about who you are and how you got to be interested in uh, atrocities and mass violence. Sure.
1: Um, Well, I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Wollongong which is just south of Sydney in Australia and genocide studies has always been my passion really from when I was an undergraduate student. Um, As a child I think or as a, a teenager at school I learned about the Holocaust and was really horrified uh, to learn uh, about what happened, but had kind of received a naive education that really didn't go into other genocides, and I naively had some faith in the concept of never again. And so when I got to university and was doing a history major and enrolled in a subject called the Holocaust and genocide, I was utterly horrified to learn that, in fact... um, you know the the international community really hadn't um, held to its promise of never again after the Holocaust, and I was I was just just shocked to to learn about the Cambodian genocide, uh, to learn about what happened in uh, the Balkans, in Rwanda, um, and and I just felt that. That this was really an indictment on the world as a whole, and that that led to um, an honours thesis and then into a PhD. And so I've I've always been very passionate about genocide studies and, and genocide prevention, and it's led into this uh, career now.
0: And how about you, Annie?
2: Uh, I would say similar to Deborah. It was, uh, I guess through my education career that I sort of fell into this topic, if you will. I don't think um, I had as clear a path of progression as Deborah, but I started uh, learning Indonesian way back in primary school and I continued through high school and then into university. And I was mainly doing an Indonesian studies major. And as part of that degree, I got to spend about a year of my undergraduate studies studying in in Indonesian universities and while I was there I happened to be doing a project and I had this journalist friend and we had to write a little project on some form of research in Indonesian studies and so I went with my journalist friend just to see what she was doing and she happened to be interviewing a couple of women who had been detained in what were essentially concentration camps in the late sixties and early seventies in Indonesia. And I came away from that uh interview where I really just sat in the room and didn't didn't make a noise. I came away from that interview and I asked my journalist friend, I said, What what's what's this thing with the detention camps? What what is this woman talking about? And it was really a, a point of revelation for me because I had never heard of these massacres that had swept across Indonesia in the mid-60s. And from there, it kind of progressed into, again, like what Deborah did, a a smaller research project at the undergraduate level for honours and then into a PhD. And that uh, that was back in 2002. So I've really been interviewing people from this period for about a decade now, and I think I'll continue doing it for much of the rest of my career. (laughs) So I guess I kind of accidentally fell into genocide studies from learning about these horrific events in Indonesia and I've just continued on with it in my career and I'm now mainly teaching Indonesian studies but also um, Southeast Asian studies, which includes um, uh, quite a look at the quite dark histories in this region of mass atrocities and genocides so yeah, I guess that's how I started.
0: So how did you all come to write this book?
1: Uh, well, or edit
0: this book. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> um, we were both working at the Asia Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect at the University of Queensland, which was a centre set up um, after the Responsibility to Protect. Um, uh, doctrine was agreed on at the World Summit in 2005. Um, and the responsibility to protect is, it was a statement that highlighted countries' own responsibility to protect their populations from genocide and mass atrocities, but also the international responsibility to do so. Um, and, after the summit, after the world summit, a number of centres were set up to um, focus on uh, R2P, as it's called for short. And Annie and I were both em- employed in uh, the, one, the Asia Pacific Centre at the University of Queensland, and we decided that um, just through discussions and and so on, that there really was a a relative lack of focus on genocide and mass atrocities in Asia um, as opposed to sort of a, a much more strong focus uh, on events in Europe, um, and even in Africa. So the idea first germinated as, as an idea for a workshop to, to get a group of people together who were specialists in the region and and see what we could explore. And, and that in turn um, ultimately led to the volume.
0: Yeah, I was really struck by... By the similarities in the stories you both of you told about how you became interested in this and about the way in which you You were shocked or surprised to f- discover the kind of history of mass violence And and I have to say I've, I've always kind of assumed you you point that out in the inter introduction to the book that that This is a, a story that has gotten little attention and not really been told very well And I have to confess I've always kind of thought that was true for people who studied or were born in the United States or Europe and kind of expected that that would not be true for people in Australia. But perhaps it is. And so I guess I'm wondering why is it that that, that region and what has happened there has received so little attention?
2: Well, I think uh, it's understandable in a lot of ways why there is a Greater focus, particularly in the latter half of the twentieth century, particularly on the Holocaust and within studies of genocide, but also in Rwanda, former Yugoslavia, Armenia. Again, that more European focus. Mm -hmm. And in terms of why there's less of a focus in Australia on these regions, um, I I think it's partly a legacy of their educational system, Mm -hmm. in that we have quite a, I guess, a legacy of English education system. And it's really only been in the last 15 to 20 years that you've seen a shift, particularly in historical studies in Australia, to look more at our region, but also at our own past. And so, like I think a lot of post-colonial countries um, and settler colonial countries, we've only sort of recently started to look at our own past and um, the atrocities committed as part of the colonization project in countries like Australia, Canada, and North America more generally. And so I think it's partly a turn in historical studies more generally. Uh, In terms of looking at cases of mass atrocities in Asia, there have been quite excellent studies done on individual cases in Asia. I mean, there's been excellent work done on the Cambodian genocide in particular. Mm -hmm. um, Some of the mass loss of life under Mao in China, uh, certainly on Japanese expansionism during uh, and before World War II, but not so much comparative work. There's, There's really only been individual case studies as far as I can when we look across at the field.
1: And I guess if I can jump in and add to that, yeah, um, I think Annie will agree with me that Australia's kind of always sat a little bit uncomfortably in terms of knowing its position. Um, we, we've always looked to um, Britain historically as our former colo- uh, colonial power um, for much of our policy and. Um, much of our sense of place in the world, yet the reality is that we are located in the Asia-Pacific region and that's been quite an uncomfortable dichotomy in some ways in, in both the Australian educational system and in our approach to foreign affairs. Um, the sense of, you know, do we look to Britain? Do we look to the United States, which is obviously our, our closest, most, pow- most powerful ally? Or do we look to countries that are much closer to us? geographically and i think how our, our history curriculum um ha, over time has been influenced by all of those Factors, but only in recent decades, um, more by our geographical location than perhaps our historical, um, and political connections. And as a result, um, the types of languages and the types of histories that have been taught in schools have often been very focused on, on Europe. Um, yet at the same time, we, we had large numbers of refugees from um, the Vietnam War, large numbers of refugees from the Cambodian genocide arriving in Australia um, and starting to build their lives here um, as both Annie and I were, were growing up. Yet this the, the experiences of these people um wasn't really critically examined very closely, probably in much the same way as when many Jewish uh refugees from World War II arrived in Australia in the late forties and early fifties. The focus then was also on, you know, assimilation, a and uh building a life rather than examining that past and only with time perhaps, um, has, has it come a little bit more full circle to examine, uh, the past and as, are we as a country sort of incorporating those, those narratives, um, as part of our story too?
0: So you divide the book into two parts, legacies and prevention. And and just looking at legacies first, Annie, you, you, you write about this effort to wrestle with the legacies of violence in Indonesia. Can you say something about what's been done in Indonesia in an attempt to address past violence and how successful it's been? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, I suppose I should sketch a short narrative here in order to explain Please. my answer. Uh, Indonesia had an authoritarian military government for over 32 years and it ended, it was called the New Order Government, and it ended in 1998. And in the immediate post-New Order period, there were a number of excellent reforms put in place, particularly under the Presidents Habibi and Abdurrahman Wahid, better known as Gustur. These were sort of the first two post-authoritarian presidents. And under the two of them, they really did a great deal to reform some of the worst forms of governance in Indonesia. So they did things like reform the Constitution, effectively putting in a, a Bill of Rights into the new Constitution. They created legislation around human rights, around ad hoc human rights courts. The military was removed from holding seats within the parliament. They set up free and fair elections, they removed many of the very harsh and discriminatory articles of law, such as those used to silence opposition to the government, such as the hate sowing articles that were used against pretty much anyone who wanted to criticise the government, and all sorts of things, and these were excellent reforms. But since these early reforms, there has been very little consolidation or progression. All right, uh, we might call them second-generation reforms that were that are meant to build on these first round of reforms that were done roughly between 1999 and 2003. And these second-generation reforms, they simply haven't happened pretty much since the current president Susilo Bambang who's known as SBY, or SBY. Uh, he was elected to his first term in 2004 and will be finishing his second term next year. Uh, And pretty much for the whole length of his administration, very little has happened uh, in terms of consolidating these very good reforms. A very obvious example is uh, law number 34 from 2004, if I'm not wrong, which was on the Indonesian military, which was supposed to do a number of things, including to divest the military of its vast business holdings by 2009 and this simply hasn't happened and so the military remains a semi-autonomous empire I guess you'd say with very little civilian oversight which as you can imagine is very dangerous for protecting civilians from abuses. Um, another area of concern uh, are the long delays in revising some of the crucial legislation in the in the country, such as the criminal code, which is terribly inadequate and which doesn't hold up to Indonesia's obligations under various international conventions such as the Convention Against Torture and Ill Treatment. And so I guess overall Indonesia has made impressive reforms that should have, had they been followed through, done much to address past and current violence, but these Sure. I guess that's my answer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me ask, when it, during this time of transition, after after the authoritarian government is, is eased out of power, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure that's the best description of it, but that's <laughs> what we'll go with. Um, where are they looking for examples uh, of how to deal with past atrocities? Are they looking to uh, I don't even know the, the 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 Nuremberg trials or other places where where did or or is this con- essentially autonomous or indigenous?
2: I would say Indonesia uh, has no real interest in dealing with its past,
0: to be mm. frank. Okay.
2: Uh, in the immediate post-authoritarian um, period, there were these laws set up to hold ad hoc human rights courts, and there have been a few, but each one of them has been a complete failure. There's also been, well, there is also a national human rights body called Comnas Hum, which does some excellent work to investigate uh, past abuses and which has produced some excellent thorough reports on very grievous crimes in the past. Each one of these reports has been rejected by the Attorney-General's Department uh, with such ridiculous excuses as they're incomplete or um, they're not thorough enough, all right? And essentially what it is, is there's a very strong lack of political will on the part of Indonesian political elites to sort of open up the Pandora's box of very serious crimes against humanity uh, that have happened over quite a long period in Indonesia, nor are they at all willing to try and tackle the current crimes against humanity going on in certain areas, particularly West Papua. So Indonesia doesn't, it's not at a place yet where it's ready to look at past or even current crimes. And so, and any sort of discussion that happens at the international level about, for example, Indonesia ratifying the UN Convention on Genocide or the Rome Statute is very quickly shut down because Indonesia will never accede to any of those uh, hmm. conventions it has it has it considers it western interference, and so Indonesia is in some ways a good example of democratic reform post authoritarianism, but in a lot of other ways it's exactly what you should not do <laughs> hmm. post authoritarian regime
0: hmm. so deborah we don't we don't clearly have time to go through each and every essay but but is Indonesia the exception in terms of dealing with the legacy of mass violence uh, or or is it more typical than we might wish I- in Asia?
1: Um, I think probably Annie's better place to, to answer that question. Did you want to answer that, Annie? Please. Or- yeah, sure. Uh, I guess, okay, just quickly. I would say, interestingly, Indonesia is a
2: bit of a paradox. When you look at the region of Southeast Asia where you have Uh, a number of what you would call semi-democracies, but also some very quite um, ingrained, recalcitrant, more authoritarian regimes, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's probably half the members of ASEAN. Uh, Indonesia is, particularly over the last 15 years, positioned itself quite self-consciously as a leader on human rights, which, looking back 10 years ago, is... it's quite a bizarre thing, really, <laughs> to move from an authoritarian regime to a country which uh, wants to be seen as a leader in the region on human rights is, is is something quite new and exciting, and particularly under President SBY, uh, Indonesia has tried to position itself much more strongly within ASEAN, uh, and they were responsible in a lot of ways for the creation of the ASEAN Human Rights Body, the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, or AICHR, a few years ago. And they have been quite vocal on some humanitarian issues within the region. For example, um, last year, the former Vice President, Yusuf Kala, was the ASEAN Special Envoy on addressing abuses against Rohingyas in Rakhine State in Burma. And so they've made a couple of admirable forays into regional issues, but they haven't translated these, uh, I guess, words into actual concrete steps to protect civilians domestically.
1: And I think if I... um, Oh, sorry. Um, No, go ahead. If I can just jump in there, I think I'd just probably add to that. If we look at the... um, uh, In terms of legacies, if we look at transitional justice... um, efforts in Asia compared to globally, I think we can sort of really see some points of difference there. Um, So obviously we've had the um, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda uh, and for the former Yugoslavia um, that have attempted to deal with uh, the mass atrocities that occurred in those places. Um, But the hybrid uh, tribunal in Cambodia, the extraordinary uh, chambers in the courts of Cambodia, Um, has probably achieved and is likely to achieve much less than um, either the ICTY or the ICTR and uh, events like uh, the atrocities in Indonesia in 1965 and 1966 are really unlikely to see any, there's really unlikely to be any form of transitional justice in the wake of um, those. And similarly, East Timor's um, uh, Commission for Truth and Justice and Reconciliation was a much less um, powerful body that had to negotiate in a much more uh, compromised position uh, in terms of um, some sort of transitional justice or reconciliation after the events in East Timor. So I think that's a place where we can see some real points of difference uh, in terms of addressing the legacies of um, mass atrocities in Asia compared to elsewhere.
0: And and, and if you can speculate, why, why, why those points of difference? Why did it turn out this way, at least so far?
1: Look, that's a really interesting um, question. I think one of the factors that one can point to is to some extent, regime continuity um, and the continued power of um, perpetrators or those very closely aligned with perpetrators of some of these, Crimes. Um, so, for example, East Timor remains very dependent on um, its much more powerful neighbour, Indonesia, uh, which really limits um, its capacity to um, try and have any of the mass atrocities um, with which you know the Indonesian military was was involved addressed. Um, or similarly in the wake of the Cambodian genocide, the um, the Cold War saw the West continue to support the Khmer Rouge even after it was overthrown and uh, give the Khmer Rouge, Cambodia, a seat at the United Nations right through until um, the peace process in the early 90s. And that sort of continuity... um, uh, of involvement of the Khmer Rouge really um, prevented any any sort of steps towards tr- uh, justice for the um, terrible crimes that they committed. So I, I guess I'd suggest that that kind of uh, continuity um, of power uh, associated with the perpetrators um, has been a a major contributing factor. Did you want to add anything else there Annie?
2: Uh, I would agree with that. I think um, the cases that have come up for any sort of transitional justice in in Asian context are vastly different um, and probably more comparable with uh, latent cases in Latin America where you Mm. have a quite considerable passage of time before there's really space or political will to Carry out these these forms of and mechanisms mechanisms of transitional justice and and while I believe there's much um, to be gained from doing comparative studies of different mechanisms of transitional justice, each one has to be contextualised within the political and social atmosphere of it happening. So, and the Asian cases are in so many ways very different from their counterparts in other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, I was I was really struck in the essay about East Timor. I'm sorry, I forget the author's name right uh, right now, but but I was struck by the argument that one of the political leaders in East Timor was making that I think the phrase was social justice was more important than I don't know what transitional justice or the the importance of of working on issues like unemployment and poverty was more pressing and more important than the effort to get justice for past crimes.
2: Yeah, that that was Heather Castell's article on um, the CAVR, and and, uh, uh, in many ways, the only approach that you can have for looking at transitional justice in Timor-Leste, which is uh, Timor has had to choose pragmatism over Mm -hmm. achieving justice for the past because of their proximity to Indonesia, and because their future depends on their relationship with its neighbors, first and foremost, Indonesia. So whether that's a good enough result for the people of timor leste I don't think so, but it's certainly the path that has been chosen by its leaders.
0: So what are the things that comes out from these essays, uh, and I guess I'll ask Deborah to answer this first, Is is the historical unwillingness of the rest of the world to intervene in, um, the mass, the incidents of mass violence that occur in Asia. It's, it's in a variety of specific essays and it forms a backdrop for most of them. Um, can you say a little bit about why this was, why the world was so reluctant to intervene?
1: Look, I think there's
0: a global
1: level of reluctance to intervene. Unfortunately, it's very much been the typical response to, to genocide and mass violence rather than an atypical response. And, um, I think we can point to a number of, of factors that, that are probably, um, Of global influence, although perhaps some even more so in Asia, and one of them is the principle of uh, sovereignty and the idea of non the non viability non inviability of sovereignty. So. obviously our nation state system is built on the idea of, of sovereign rights and non-intervention and that's taken perhaps even more seriously in Asia than than anywhere else in, in the world where is really seen as unacceptable to interfere at any level with the uh, so-called internal affairs of a state, even when those internal affairs uh, may include massive, massive violence against the state's own citizens, um, and and this has really led to um, a situation of uh, leap. Le- leaders who are perpetrating genocide, having re- really complete, um, complete sanction to do whatever they wish. Um, is it? In, on one hand, um, this is how our nation state, state system works, but um, on the other hand, it's it's led to these these terrible crimes, such as uh, the Cambodian genocide, in which you know there was um uh, of course no possible um desire to to intervene by any of the um of the powers that might have done so or the united nations um or anything like that and of course there's also issues of real politic of um Governments that are, Western governments that are dependent on voters for their support. Um, and there's a sense that if you start sending lots of troops in to these countries and, and many start coming home in body bags that you'll lose support. So it's a high risk activity to intervene in genocide and it's often politically a relatively low cost not to intervene and that that has changed in recent decades to some extent. Um, the idea of completely ignoring what's going on uh, globally is, is much less acceptable than it was um, two decades ago, for example however, there's a sort of a vast distance between um, that and really effective action to um, prevent or curb uh, a genocidal situation of mass atrocities and so what, we, what we're more likely to see now is, uh, you know, our statements, uh, efforts to work with the United Nations, um, sometimes, you know, a very slow deploy- deployment of ineffective uh, multilateral forces such as in Darfur um, because they, they fulfill a mandate of being seen to be taking some sort of action without fulfilling, without actually... Taking effective action, and even something like that is probably much less likely in Asia because of the strong focus in the region on sovereignty
0: hmm. yeah you talk you, you, you uh, let me go back a little bit to the the change you suggest, and I want to press you a little bit on on two elements of that and and Deborah, you wrote your essay uh, in a really i thought ingenious way, kind of speculating, looking at Cambodia as it happened, and then looking at the kind of constraints that led the world not to, or the factors that led the world not to intervene in Cambodia and speculating about if you move those forwards to today, would those factors still be true? And so one of those changes is, as you suggested earlier, the the introduction of the responsibility to protect. And so I'd like you to say something about and, and, and Annie, you can chip in too if you want, about the degree to which the responsibility to protect has changed things either rhetorically or practically.
1: Sure. Well, there's been a lot of hype around the responsibility to protect, both positive hype and negative hype, I would say. Um, And, look, it it certainly can be seen as a landmark in terms of having 193 um, United Nations member states at the World Summit in 2005, all agreeing to this this statement that, you know, nations must take primary responsibility for protecting their own populations from genocide and mass atrocities, um, that the international community has... um, a role to play when nations are manifestly failing to protect their own communities from this kind of violence, and also by um, acknowledging the need for early warning and the need for a focus on um, prevention. So the it, it certainly can be regarded as um, a landmark achievement in those uh, in that sense. However, at the re- the the kind of um, discussions that have happened at the theoretical and rhetorical level really haven't consistently played out when one actually starts to look at mass atrocities that have occurred since the advent of r two p. Um, so uh, we've had a number of, of crises uh, since 2005 obviously the, the situation in Darfur was unfolding as R2P was negotiated mm-hmm. um, but also since then we've had Libya and Syria and what we've seen is um, a relatively inconsistent application of um, this notion of the responsibility to protect, um, and a much stronger hypothetical rhetoric about the power of R2P than its application to case studies. So, what I wanted to do in my chapter was actually to examine in a very applied way whether RSP would be able to overcome some of the critical barriers that are likely to um, to be there, um, you know, if and when the next uh, genocide happens uh, somewhere in Asia or anywhere around the globe. And what I concluded was that while it's able to, you know, really, uh, while both... Um, both progress more broadly since the Cambodian genocide and um, greater human rights progress such as r two p um, are likely to overcome some of the barriers that that prevented any any international response to the Cambodian genocide. Really, there are a number of critical gaps that that still remain, um, and that if we are serious about genocide prevention as a global community, we need to be thinking about those gaps now rather than in a crisis situation.
0: And Annie, I'll give you uh, uh, the first crack, I guess, at the second change I was uh, noticing in the essays, and that's... That's the development of a large and active, at least on a global level, civil society. And my backgrounds in European history and Mm -hmm. and European historians especially talk about civil society emerging toward the end of the Soviet Empire and helping along 1989, and then kind of exploding, especially with the emergence of the internet and Twitter and a variety of social medias. Um, What impact? has that had on this issue of prevention of mass atrocities and genocide?
2: I would say certainly within the Southeast Asian region, which is my area of specialty, I would Mm -hmm. not like to so much comment on parts of North Asia. Sure. But I think really if you look at any action that's happened, it's only happened because of civil society groups in the Southeast Asian region. Collectively... um, these groups have been responsible for the little progress that we have seen over um, more recent years. For example, um, if we talk about the ASEAN block, uh, collectively within the Southeast Asian region there has been some progress. Um, ASEAN, under continuous pressure from these civil society groups of human rights organisations and their like, over quite a few years, finally set up the Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights in 2009 because of this ongoing pressure. Um, and any progress that has been made, it's been pushed by these groups which often, again in pragmatic terms, need to work with um, governments in order to achieve this, this action. There is also of course a host of, of other human rights organisations which work more outside Government spheres, again, depending on, on the country that they're in, because in certain countries in the ASEAN bloc, you can't have non government approved NGOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are some very real constraints on how these groups organise within the region. But I would certainly say that any progress we have seen has been due to the tremendous and brave efforts by some extraordinary groups of people in the region. Definitely.
0: Um, you talk, uh, in your introduction especially, uh, about the importance of a regional perspective. Uh, and so we've touched on this in, in, in a couple areas, but I thought I'd broaden the question out. Uh, what can we learn about genocide, and the, or the legacy of genocide and mass violence, about preventing mass violence from looking at Asia?
2: Well, I would—I'll I'll just cut in here and <laughs> give my opinion. Uh, I guess for someone who comes at this from a very strong Southeast Asian slash Indonesian, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's it's about drawing uh, fruitful research from when you do the comparative studies. For example, uh, I'll just give you a, a short list of what I think are some of the more obvious areas for comparative studies um, Mm -hmm. in genocide studies from the region. For example, uh, I think there could be a lot more work done on comparing man-made famines as part of genocidal processes, uh, both the collectivisation and forced labour projects under, for example, Mao Pol Pot with those under Stalin, as well as in Timor-Leste during the um, late 1970s and early 1980s under the Indonesian occupation. So I think there is an important study to be done there. There's also uh, comparisons that need to be made with Asian studies, um, Asian context rather, on the steps which lead to genocide, particularly around incitement and mobilisation of populations. For example, looking at various propaganda campaigns which incite large parts of the population to pick up weapons and start attacking their Mm neighbours. Just off the top of my head, the propaganda campaigns in the mid-60s in Indonesia against leftists could be quite easily compared with those um, under Franco in Spain in the late 30s. The excitement, propaganda in Rwanda. Of course, also the forms of killings and mass deprivations against particular groups need to be done as well, comparing the forced labour and starvation that happened in European cases with those in Cambodia, Timor-Leste, Indonesia, and so on. And also other particular forms of violence that are often a large part of genocidal violence, for example, forms of child soldiering between African cases and the extensive use mm-hmm. of child soldiers over the last 40 years in Burma is something which is terribly under research. So those are just off the top of my head things that I think could benefit a great deal from comparative research. Deborah, what do you think?
1: Um, look, I'd, I'd agree. I think um, both Annie and I really found when we started doing the research for this book that there is really a, a lack of comparative studies of Asian and non-Asian examples, and to some extent, Asian and other Asian uh, examples uh, as well. So certainly, we're hoping that you know not only is our book contributed to to this uh, comparative approach, but that it will um, hopefully inspire and encourage more comparative approaches. I think other other lessons that that can perhaps be um, taken specifically from Asian examples um, are the nature of the victim groups that can be targeted by these crimes which often are subtly different in many respects in the asian examples uh compared to sort of perhaps european uh examples or um other examples of genocide so so we sometimes we have less defined groups targeted um such as in um Uh, the Great Leap Forward in China where there's this massive mortality um, for social engineering purposes um, but in terms of targeted groups it's much more diffuse Um, and similarly um, we can look at sort of how the in the Cambodian um, example we have groups um, such as minority groups that who would qualify as victims of genocide under the uh, United Nations Genocide convention and at the same time we have the majority Khmer population also targeted um, with the same treatment often uh, and the same severity of conditions often, although not always, but not um, not con- necessarily considered um, as victims of genocide under the UN definition. Yet in many respects, that's a very artificial uh, distinction. Uh, so I think that... Um, examining victim groups offers one um Uh, one way in which looking at Asian case studies can really add to um, the knowledge base. But I also think from a prevention perspective, looking at the role of regional organisations in Asia compared to elsewhere can also be very illuminating because in Asia we have a region where regional organisations are relatively weak um, and relatively uninterested in... Uh, issues of human rights, and if we contrast that with the UN's work on um, mass atrocity prevention um, and also uh, the the African Union's uh, work uh, on trying to prevent mass atrocities in their region, we can see some real differences and perhaps real opportunities for prevention work as well.
0: And you talk about prevention. Well, one one of the ways you end your book is to point out that that regions within Asia uh, are at great, or some regions within Asia are at great risk for mass violence in the future. Can can you say a little bit about where and why, and what kind of efforts are being made to prevent this? Sure.
1: Um, well, look, I think as Annie um, said, we we have the Rohingya in um, Burma who are very vulnerable. Um, currently and um, this is on, on the, the, what are termed the risk list for genocide and mass atrocities. There's a, there's a number of lists out there that identify countries at higher risk and we can see that Burma um, comes in at the highest risk level on many of these risk lists. Mm. Um, which which just highlights how vulnerable these people are, and we also have um, the ongoing situation in North Korea, which obviously you know has has not changed for some time. But nevertheless, there's there's really no doubt that the, the terrible suffering going on in North Korea that just sort of often. Uh, remains uncommented on. Um, and we also have, um, you know, a number of human rights concerns in China, uh, particularly with the Tibetan people. Um, so there's a a number of areas in the region where there are very real, um, very real concerns, um, and serious challenges in terms of how to, to address those concerns. Andy, did you want to add to that at all?
2: Um, I guess I have a number of sort of hot points in my mind about over the next sort of ten years where worrying trends might get worse or they might get better. And again, off the top of my head I guess I would again mention Burma, uh, because we have to question about how how democratic will the transition be? I mean, after the twenty fifteen general elections can we expect another landslide victory for the Uttar Party, the USDP? Or is Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy going to get a fairer share of seats? And how much violence can we expect around these elections? And elections in general tend, I don't want to say attract violence, but they become uh, peak points for violence in various parts of the region. Indonesia next year has uh, presidential elections, which are going to be very tense that need to be watched. Um, Other places in the region are having referendums and elections coming up. Bougainville in PNG is supposed to be getting an independence referendum as early as 2015, which again is a a point to watch considering the history of violence there. Major regional issues like West Papua are I think only gonna get worse before they get any better. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, international attention on West Papua for the last few years. Uh, merited certainly and I think Indonesia really needs to find a less violent way to resolve the independence claims from West Papua. Uh, Also in Indonesia I think a lot of people are watching to see how bad issues around religious intolerance are going to Mm. get. Uh, There's been increasing numbers of states of violence pogroms and so forth against religious minorities in Indonesia, such as against Shia and Sufi and Ahmadi Muslims, also against Christians? And will these become a wedge issue that will drive more frequent and indeed larger incidents of mass violence? And so these are particular issues, but you have to put them against the very long-standing issues of persecution of certain minority groups within the region as well. For example, against um, uh, minority groups living in the upper highland regions of mainland Southeast Asia, um, against you know, particular groups in parts of northeastern India, which has seen some horrific violence. As Deborah mentioned, in Tibet, Xinjiang, but also mm-hmm. other minorities, particularly in southern China. I mean, all of these things have been going on for 50, 60 years. Uh, but they still bear monitoring. And I guess, so there's a number of issues that I think we're looking at over the next 10 years at least.
0: Uh, yeah, you pointed several times to Indonesia. I'm just wondering, to what degree do you think, as, as, as I understood your comments, the kind of failure of F- transitional justice efforts in Indonesia, to what degree is that uh, a, a contributor to the potentials for future violence?
2: I think it's probably the greatest predictor, actually. Mm. Uh, I, I have to say that as much as I appreciate the, the efforts that have been made in Indonesia and other places to reform their militaries, to professionalise their police and all these sorts of things, until you have some form of reliable accountability for crimes committed by such organisations and institutions, you can't expect any real improvement on the ground in terms of protection for the civilians. Uh Indonesia is a classic case. There is a very little
1: And I think project. if I if I just add to that, um mm-hmm. Uh, impunity for mass atrocities is well recognized as um, a contributor to increased uh, cycles of violence um, and violence of increased intensity. Um, so, and in fact, you know, if you could sort of, Barbara Harp's predictors of mass atrocities, um, past genocide is well known as a predictor for future genocide. And part of that is this impunity issue. So um, transitional justice and dealing with the legacies is not just an issue of, of addressing the past, but also about changing the future. And I think when we first looked at doing this volume, one of the reasons why we chose to look at legacies and prevention is because we really think that they're inherently linked um, and that you can't just prevent or change the future of a region without actually addressing these issues of the past. Um, Yet at the same time, if you only regard them as being in the past, you're denying the opportunity to change the future as well. So I guess that's where we see um, both the legacies part of our volume and the uh, prevention part of our volume as really intertwined um, because dealing with these legacies is uh, a crucial component of creating a different future.
0: Well, I think you've done a wonderful job in the book. Pointing that out and, and, and expanding our knowledge, and I just want to say a brief word of compliment to, to the publisher who kept the price tolerable compared to many many publishers who make it essentially only available to libraries. And it's wonderful that, in, that ordinary people can go out and buy those. I have to say one of the one of the results of my reading your volume is to make me recognize how little I actually knew about the region. <laughs> So I'm going to give you a chance to enlighten me. Can you suggest, and our listeners, but mostly me, uh, what one or two books would you suggest for people to read to start learning about this issue in East Asia, in Asia, aside from, of course, yours, which should be the first on the list?
1: (laughs) Of course. Um look I think um Ben Keenan's The Pol Pot Regime um is is certainly a, an absolutely essential read um if you if readers are interested in learning about the genocide in Cambodia um and more broadly Keenan's Genocide and Resistance in Southeast Asia um as well and I think also um, one of the the books that was just absolutely illuminating for me uh, to read was Mao's Great Salmon, uh by mm-hmm. Frank Dicketer, um, uh, which just gives an extraordinarily harrowing and detailed account of the Great Leap Forward in China. Um, so there, there are a couple of suggestions from me about learning more about specific genocides. Annie, did you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, Ben Kiernan's been a, a a real trailblazer in this area, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also add to that his um, 2008 book, which was Blood and Soil, uh, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to, da- to Darfur, I think is the title, mm-hmm. uh, in which he incorporates uh, quite a few Asian case studies, including Japanese military expansion and China under Mao. And in terms of... Uh looking at, I guess because my main expertise is on the 1965 killings in Indonesia, uh, I would recommend for that topic Robert Cribb's work. He
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, did an edited volume uh, about 20 years ago now called The Indonesian Killings. Uh, but there's a more recent volume too by Douglas Kamen and Catherine McGregor called The Contours of Mass Violence in Indonesia. And together those uh, two volumes offer quite a broad study of these killings. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would recommend, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I, I just have one more question for each of you and that's pretty simple. What, what are you working on now? And Annie, why don't we start with you?
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, well, what I'm working on now goes out of my previous research, mainly on the 1965 massacres. I'm now broadening my analysis to incorporate cases of mass atrocities across the Indonesian archipelago between 1960 19- to 1999, which is basically the period of water authoritarian regime. And so I just got back last week from a research trip to Timor-Leste to collect information about the Indonesian occupation period and later I'll be returning to Indonesia a few more times doing a little bit of work in Ate and perhaps later in West Papua and mainly i'm focusing on forms of torture and ill treatment so physical mental and sexual forms of severe harm by particularly the indonesian police and military against civilians so that's that's pretty much taking up most of my time now <laughs>
0: And
1: Deborah? Um, I'm actually looking at some cases of almost genocide at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm looking at is um, cases in which there seemed to be a very high risk of genocide, but then genocide did not eventuate um, or did not eventuate at the time of crisis in question and what I'm trying to tease out is the role of inhibitory factors um, in reducing the risk of genocide in high-risk nations. Um, We know a lot about risk factors, um, about how risk of genocide develops over time but we know much less about how that process is sometimes non-linear, how risk uh, of genocide sometimes actually decreases um, and how countries can display resilience in the face of uh, risk of genocide. So at the moment, I'm looking at eight case studies where there seemed to be this very high risk of genocide but it did not in fact occur mm. um, to try and identify some of the um, inhibitory or amelioratory factors um, which hopefully then can feed into the growing field of genocide prevention
0: Well those sound like wonderful projects and I hope that somewhere down the line after they come out that you all will be willing to come and the program again and and chat with me about them Uh, but for now I want to say thank you so much it was wonderful and um, I really appreciate you coming on
1: Thank you you very very much All
0: right, thanks take care
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Deborah Meyerson and Annie Pullman, editors of the book Genocide and Mass Atrocities in Asia, Legacies and Prevention. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview John Roth and Peter Hayes about their contribution to the Oxford Handbook series, The Oxford Handbook of Holocaust Studies. Until then, I hope you have a great month.